All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three of the Compliance Guy Live. My name is Sean Weiss, and I am <clears throat> so excited to be here today. I think we have a great show for you. Uh, two of um, really, really respected attorneys uh, with central focus on uh, health law are joining me for two different segments today. Um, really excited to be able to have these conversations about topics that are critical but seem to be flying under the radar uh, of most people that are working in hospitals, health systems, physician practices, group practices, uh, because they may not be sexy topics they may not be things that are always at the top of your watch list or to-do list. And as a result, you wind up letting these things kind of fester before somebody actually points out to you that you got a problem. And usually when somebody points out to you that you have a problem, it, it can wind up being a little bit too late. So I think part of the theme for today's um, show is being proactive and, and not waiting for a problem to rear its ugly head. <clears throat> Recognition of what the statutes and what the laws are and what's going on with the three-letter contractors to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So again, I think the theme of today's show is being proactive. And I, I don't know that I could have picked two better guests to join me on this broadcast today than Amanda Wesh and Jenna Godluski of Godleski. Godleski. Yes, thank you, Scott. And I caught myself. Um who will be uh, uh, joining us after Amanda's segment. So <clears throat> let me quickly begin by introducing Amanda Wesh. Amanda uh, has been practicing health law now for probably right around 15 years. She looks like she just actually graduated high school. Um, but I will tell you, uh, I have the distinct honor and privilege of getting to work with Amanda on Almost, it's, it feels like a daily basis. Um, we share some clients together. Uh, you know, I have a lot of opportunities to bring her into discussions with clients who are uh, finding their back up against the wall due to one or more uh, issues that have arisen. Uh, and we can obviously uh, talk about some of those. And I think actually one of those clients and one of those scenarios is actually applicable to the conversation that we're going to have today um, regarding Stark and the profit sharing uh, aspect of that. Uh, but Amanda is a vice president with Brenna, Mana, and Diamond. Uh, they are based out of Ohio, but Amanda's uh, practice is nationwide. Uh, for those of you that don't know Amanda, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for you to have a first introduction to her. Um, you'll get to see what I, along with our clients, uh, get to experience each and every single day when we work with her. 
Uh, Amanda gives a lot of lectures uh, for different societies uh, around the country. She does work with the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NamUs. I know she's going to be presenting in December this year. Uh, so again, uh, I don't want to take much time away from the show. Uh, I, I hope my introduction, Amanda, did you justice. Uh, if there's anything that I left out, please uh, take a couple of moments and 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 let our our folks know who are listening uh, a little bit more about you and your practice. Oh, Sean, thank you for having me. Um, the introduction was very humbling, <laughs> so I I enjoy working with you. <laughs> Um, we've worked together for years. Um, your team is amazing. And um, so glad that, that I could be here today and that we can have this conversation because this is something that we've been talking about a lot um, and helping our mutual clients out on. And so we definitely want to get the word out to as many providers as possible because you're right. The theme is about being proactive. Um, I feel in 2020, we did a lot of reacting and that's, that's nobody's fault. It just happens. <laughs> But in healthcare, it is really important to be proactive on the compliance side. Um, I know you're going to talk about on the revenue cycle side um, with Jenna and her, her component of the presentation, um, but it is important to be proactive and not to be that low-hanging fruit. Absolutely. And I, you know, and, and I think that's really, you know, a, a, a valid point is, you know, the government tends to go after, as do the commercial payers, and I think that's something that I've tried to convey over the first, you know, couple of episodes of this show, you know, with former uh, and current prosecutors, you know, Michael Cook and Robert Lyles, and then, you know, on episode two, you know, really, you know, breaking it down with a former special agent from the office of the inspector general, uh, Eric Rubenstein and Jordan Johnson from OncoSpark, where, you know, because he's really into statistics and data analytics. And, and I think to your point, you know, and, and I know Jenna and I are definitely going to have this conversation. You know, data is king and data drives these conversations. And I think it's, you know, it's the data that if practices aren't proactive with understanding what's in their practice management system, what their, you know, billing patterns are, what their coding patterns are, those things that are detectable, those things that are low hanging fruit. Without that information, you're a wide open target. And, you know, it, it, and, and that's when people like yourself and Jenna, you know, wind up getting phone calls from individuals going, oh, my God, I just got a letter that they want me to pay a million dollars back. And, you know, if, if people, you know, if, if healthcare leaders, and that's, that's really who we're talking to today, right? We're talking to healthcare leaders. And we're trying to help them to understand that the priority and the emphasis that you put into picking a cake for somebody's birthday that you're going to celebrate at the office, if you would put just one-tenth of that energy into your compliance aspects and you would pay attention to that stuff, most of your problems could be eliminated, right? I mean, obviously, if your name gets, yeah, if your name gets thrown into a hat, and you're the lucky dog that day, there's nothing you can do about it, right? You're going to get audited, and that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, but to your point, you know, Stark, Stark's been around forever, right? And, and it was really interesting. Um, 
I, I saw an interview a while back with Peter Stark out of California, who Stark Law is obviously named after. And, you know, he, he was talking about the fact that had he known what Stark Law was going to morph into, he, he's not sure that he actually would have put it forward in the manner that he did. And that's why we had Stark 1, Stark 2, Stark 3, and there's so many ideations of it. But that's when he asks for it to be named after somebody else. Yeah, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. So I think, you know, that's why it leads us to the conversation that we're about to embark on, you know, in the next 20, 25 minutes or so, which is the issuance of the final rule in November of 2020 regarding Stark Law. And I think... You know, you and I were talking pre-show just for a little bit about what some of the more pronounced aspects of Stark are that people are sort of familiar with. But then there's this whole segment, this whole section of Stark that's just completely flying under the radar that people are actually missing. So, um, Amanda, let's let's let me turn this over to you and and. I want you to kind of navigate us through this conversation of what is it that the final rule really talks about and puts out for people to be aware of. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the Stark Law. Um, the Stark Law, um, what, so named after Keith Stark, um, it has gone through uh, various changes, phases one, two, three, um, obviously a lot of other regulatory updates along the way. And these new regulations that came out at the end of 2020 were long awaited regulations. We've been craving them as, as healthcare uh, attorneys, as, as legal geeks. Um, we have been craving for these uh, regulatory updates to come out. Um, it has taken the, the government um, many, many years. And interestingly, they called it a sprint. Um, so I guess you know, I made the joke, I was giving a presentation a couple months ago, and I made the joke, um, even though the government called it a sprint, um, I guess if you're talking government years, like dog years, um, it was a sprint, but for us, it felt like a marathon um, that, you know, was was paused in between. Um, so we have, have anxiously been awaiting these regulations uh, to come out. They went into effect in January of 2021, um, but as Sean, as you stated, um, there are some pieces... <clears throat> of the regulations that have kind of flown under the radar. So I wanna break down um, the regulations into two parts. Um, so the Stark Law uh, is interesting um, because it's a strict liability statute. So that's why everyone says Stark Law first because it's the one that you definitely need to comply with because if you do not meet an exception, if Stark Law applies to your arrangement and you do not meet an exception, then you're gonna have strict liability. So it doesn't matter if you you know, lacked intent or didn't know any better or wasn't aware that it applied to you, um, it, it doesn't matter. It, if it applies to you and you don't meet an exception, then you're out of compliance. And, you know, common examples that we used to have were if, um, you know, a, a, a common example, example would be if a contract has expired and, and the parties didn't realize it, it was missing a signature, um, or if there was one term that was just, uh, or one element of the exception that wasn't met, um, you were automatically out of compliance. 
And so as we started to look at the business of healthcare and how parties really interact with each other, the laws and the regulations are slowly starting to evolve and address some of those business practices and, and those business needs, frankly. And so when I say that these regulations are uh, long awaited, uh, we have been engaging in value-based arrangements uh, because there's been a shift, um, especially under the Obama administration. You know, it was not pay for, you know, not fee for service, but pay for performance, more, more value-based versus volume-based payments. Um, but the problem was, is that the, you know, there was uncertainty, does the Stark law let us do that? Um, and, and so these regulations um, that were passed and implemented in January of 2021 now allow us to do that. Right. And let me, let me go back for just a moment, because I, I know that we have a, a variety of different type of viewers and, and folks who are going to be listening to us, um, you know, once the show is archived. Uh, so we have attorneys who listen. We have compliance professionals, administrators, uh, you know, different different healthcare professionals. Um, you talked about this being a strict liability law, right? Can you can you expound on that a little bit? Because uh, you know, a lot of people talk in the same sentences sometimes with. Stark and anti-kickback, right? You know, it also it, it also it almost feels like when you're when you're saying Stark for whatever reason, you feel compelled to say anti-kickback in the same sentence or vice versa. Absolutely. And like Tony Orlando and Don. That's they right. Always go together. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, you know, when you talk about Stark being a strict liability law versus the anti-kickback statute, which is what? A, it's a criminal it's law. Intent-based. It's intent-based. It's intent-based. Okay, right? so if it, let me pause because you're the attorney. I, I want you to kind of take that, that floor and explain that. Sure. So that's a great question. So we often say Stark and anti-kickback together in the same sentence, and, and rightfully show. So we, we should analyze any arrangement under both the Stark law and the anti-kickback statute. So the Stark Law applies to arrangements between physicians and entities to which physicians refer. So that would be a hospital, an ambulatory surgery center, laboratory, pharmacy, home health agency, just to name a few. If the physician has a financial arrangement, which could be either a contractual arrangement or an ownership arrangement, we're going to need to look at that relationship under the Stark Rule and see if an exception applies. If an exception applies and you have to hit every single element of the exception, then we're going to be compliant with the Stark Law. If an exception does not apply uh, and we're not able to find an exception, then it's going to be in violation of the Stark Law. And again, you have to meet each and every element of the exception um, for the arrangement to be permissible under the Stark Law. Now, let's talk about anti-kickback. The anti-kickback statute was passed long before Stark. And it's actually a little bit broader in scope. So instead of applying to just physician arrangements with an entity to which the physicians refer, the anti-kickback statute is going to apply to healthcare providers and non-healthcare providers that are in, um, in, in, in a place or have a relationship where they can refer, where they can refer patients um, and they can refer items and services to one another. 
So it can apply to an administrator that's in a position to arrange referrals to a certain provider. So it can apply to healthcare providers and non-healthcare providers. So it's a little bit broader. However, it is an intent-based statute. Um, and so there has to be a level of knowledge um, that you are violating the anti-kickback statute. Um, an anti-kickback statute prohibits giving uh, value for referrals or receiving value for referrals. And we, refer, we, we call that remuneration. So you may hear that funny word remuneration. You can't give remuneration. You can't receive remuneration right. in exchange for referrals. <clears throat> and so the anti-kickback statute prohibits that. And as I said, it was an intent-based statute. There has to be some level of knowledge. Now, knowledge is interpreted as you either know or you should have known. So I call that, you can't be an ostrich in the sand, right? You can't have your head down and say, well, I didn't know. Um, healthcare providers, um, they are under an obligation um, to know the healthcare laws and that the anti-kickback statute could apply to their arrangement. Um, and so, so the level of knowledge and intent um, is new or should have known. Got it. Now, under the anti-kickback statute, as I said, it is an intent-based statute, but we have what we call safe harbors. Uh, safe harbors are analogous to the Stark exception, but you don't necessarily have to meet a safe harbor uh, in order to be completely uh, devoid of any liability under the anti-kickback statute. So you want to, if you meet all of the elements of a safe harbor, then you're going to be found uh, fully compliant with the anti-kickback safe harbor or the anti-kickback statute. If you do not meet all of the elements of a safe harbor, we still look at the arrangement to see is there intent to provide remuneration in exchange for referrals. And we need to do an analysis as to whether uh, that intent exists. So okay. two, two statutes that are very similar, but yet very different. Um, and so we definitely wanna, when we look at an arrangement, we wanna do an analysis under both, um, both laws. Okay, and, and when you talk about knowledge base, obviously most people are familiar with the term when they say knowingly, right? But there, yeah, mm -hmm. but there's also willful neglect, right? And there's there also is. and there's also deliberate ignorance. How do those play into it? So that's so that's that um, <clears throat> either actual knowledge or should have known. So should have known is that willful neglect. I kind of know that that law is out there, but I'm not going to read it. I don't think it applies to me. I'm not even going to look and see if it applies to me because then I won't know. You know, and I, that's that's when I refer to the ostrich in the sand type thing. Um, I don't know and I don't want to know um, because then I can't be charged with actually knowing that that's not the standard. So that would be a willful neglect or a deliberate ignorance. I'm deliberately not knowing or not analyzing um, so that I can't be found with actual knowledge. Got it. OK, so I think that does a great job of clarifying the difference between a strict liability versus the intent. So with, so with that said, let's, let's talk now more about, you know, the, the aspects of Stark that people need to really be aware of and understand. Sure. Absolutely. So, so we talk about the regulations that, that were just uh, passed in December of 2020 implemented in early 2021 um, we're looking at uh, Stark Law exceptions and anti-kickback safe harbors that apply to value-based arrangements. And so uh, 
you know, this was, again, like, as I said, these are regulations that we have been craving as healthcare attorneys, because we've been doing value-based arrangements for some time. And there's always been a question of compliance. You know, is this permissible under the Stark law? Is this permissible under the anti-kickback statute? Um, because this is, this is very different than our fee-for-service world where we perform a service, we get paid. Right. Now we're looking at value. So was there cost savings? Are we able to split the cost savings? So that would, uh, can we engage in game sharing arrangements? Um, can we pay providers for following certain clinical protocols that result in maybe additional services or additional items being charged to the Medicare program? But yet, when we look at the impact to care, there is, there's definitely, you know, an impact to outcomes and to the value of care provided. And so we've been struggling over the past couple of years with implementing these arrangements, but wondering, are they compliant uh, under, under these laws? And so with these new exceptions under Stark and the new safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute, we're, we're, easy, we're, we're able to uh, better analyze these arrangements and implement these arrangements. So there are basically three new exceptions, three new safe harbors that allow for value-based arrangements. And the, the three categories that you fall into are going to be based on the amount of risk that the parties have. Um, so parties can have minimal risk and just be paid on, um, you know, paid, paid on uh, for performance or for following certain protocols. There can be um, uh, minimal, minimal risk where, you know, there's some fee for service and then there's some upside and then there could be full risk. Right. Um, and, and it's analogous to, you know, entering into those third party payment arrangements where you've got, you know, some fee for service or may have full capitation. And that's interesting, you know, that you bring up capitation because this was sort of a conversation I had earlier in the day with some folks that I was talking about. And, you know, and, and this leads into, you know, and we could, we can or cannot talk about it, whatever you want to do, I'm fine with. Um, this leads into the conversation about value-based care, right? You know, value-based care versus volume-based care. And, you know, uh, obviously there's, there's three sides to every story, right? There's yours, there's mine, and somewhere in the middle exists the truth, right? Um, but I think this is one of the things that, you know, a lot of people are struggling with is how is the value-based care really going to work unless you move completely away from fee-for-service back into a capitation. And if you're an old guy like me who's been around, you know, for 26, you know, plus years in this industry, I remember capitation when it, you know, when it first came about. And it was a complete nightmare. Now, I think a lot of people may have learned some lessons from that. And hopefully, you know, uh, the lessons learned uh, prevent us from repeating those same mistakes. <clears throat> I don't think it will prevent the payers from trying to structure contracts in, in the manners that they did in the past because they were financially uh, beneficial to them. Uh, but I think, you know, people who have been around for a long time can give better guidance and better advice uh, to those who are considering entering into a capitated agreement, you know, including, um, you know, carve outs and things of that nature. But you, you talked about gain sharing and, and I know you started to go into it. I think gain sharing is a big 
a, a big potential pitfall, right, for organizations, right? Because the gain sharing also ties into profit sharing, if I'm not mistaken, or am I, am I crossing swords? You know, you're, that's a great analogy. So it, I think it depends, going back to your first question, what is better, value-based or volume-based? I think it depends on, well, what's the goal that you're trying to achieve, right? So are we trying to be efficient and reduce costs and streamline, you know, and have some economies of scale and streamline the process, well, then maybe we're going to be looking at gain sharing, right? So we're going to be, we're going to all be on the same plan. We're going to be following the, the, the same policies. We're going to be ordering from the same suppliers and, and manufacturers. We're going to show up on time. Right. We're going to, right? So, so we're, we're going to, we're going to be more efficient with our resources which will result in lower costs. And when we lower costs for healthcare, it's better for everyone. And then we're able to share in the cost savings. Got it. So if, if that's what you're looking to do, gain sharing is, is, you know, is a great option. But if you're looking to, uh, if you're looking to improve outcomes, right. well, that may increase volume and that may increase costs because we're going to put a bigger emphasis on preventative services. So a bigger emphasis on screening and wellness. And, you know, so we, we're front loading the costs. So that's going to increase costs, right. but it's going to improve outcomes. So I think it really depends on what is the goal of the arrangement. Um, and then you've got to structure it appropriately. I think that's a brilliant analysis. And I think that's really such a, a great broken down way to explain it for a lot of folks. And I like to use the term uninitiated because, you know, I, I, I think, the more that we're able to get this kind of information out there to people, as boring as it may be, they start to recognize the pattern of criticality and how important this stuff is. And I think the other part to that, right, because we were talking about gain sharing, I think the other side to that, right, is the profit sharing that we were talking about. And we have a mutual client. And I think in the last, you know, bit of time that we have together, um, because I think this is one of the aspects, if I'm not mistaken, right, that kind of flew under the radar is the profit sharing, right? Right. So yeah. if you could, please um, share with, you know, our audience the way you would with myself, with um, any client that you were talking to, why they need to structure their profit sharing agreements in a certain manner and how should they look? Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely, right. Sean. So again, the word of the day is proactive. So we want practices to be proactive. So as I mentioned at the very beginning, the new regulations that went into effect um, actually had two components. So the first component we've already went over, the new exceptions under Stark, the new safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute, some, uh, some changes to some defined terms. But the one, but now I want to flip to the, the second component. And that's the one component that people are not really talking about. It's kind of flown under the radar. That component does not go into effect until January of 2022. So providers have a whole year, and now we're almost halfway through 2021, but providers have a whole year to get ready and make sure that they're in compliance. And so again, the word of the day is, is proactive. So let's talk about that second component that I mentioned earlier. So uh, in, in the final rules, there were some changes to the Stark Law 
and how group practices can structure their profit sharing arrangements. So we know under the Stark law that physicians can own group practices, they can be employed by group practices, and they can receive payment for services that they personally perform or services that, that are performed incident to the physician. So physicians can get reimbursed for uh, you know, office visits uh, that they perform. They can receive compensation for surgeries and procedures that they personally perform. So there's never been an issue with uh, paying physicians' productivity on services that they personally perform. But when it comes to ancillary services and revenue from those ancillary services, that has to fall into the profit-sharing bucket. So some common examples would be if you've got imaging in your office, lab, uh, DME, um, those are all good examples of common ancillaries. And if, if group practices receive revenue from those ancillaries, you're not able to bonus the physician that referred that service. It has to go into a profit sharing bucket. So that has not changed. That concept is still the same. However, the way that we structure our profit sharing plan has changed. So uh, in the past, uh, the group um, has a lot of flexibility in how to structure that profit sharing plan. Um, they can distribute the ancillary service revenue or the DHS revenue. They can distribute it uh, per capita. They can distribute it by seniority. They can distribute it by ownership. They can also distribute it based on profits from personal productivity. So there's lots of different ways that you can structure it. You can be creative. And in the past, some groups have separated it out by ancillary services. So maybe only the, um, the orthos in the group get, you know, they share in the imaging revenue. Um, maybe only the primary cares share in the lab revenue. Um, that is not permissible. You cannot have these split pools anymore. Got it. Um, so when, when, you, when you group together the ancillary revenue, you have to distribute it to all physicians based on the same methodology. Now, one thing that you can do, and this, is, this, is, this has been true before and it, and it stays true, you can set uh, pods of five up within the group. Um, it has to be at least five physicians. Uh, Mid-level providers will not count, but you can have groups of five. It can be based on specialty. It can be based on where they're located um, and you can distribute uh, ancillary revenue within that pot of five, but it has to be via the same methodology Got in it. that pot of five or in the group. So you want to take a look at your profit sharing arrangement and make sure that you don't have those, the, the split profit sharing. You want to make sure that your methodology is compliant with Stark and the new regulations. And again, that goes into effect January 1 of 2022. Good. So basically to, to reiterate in closing is that Providers have um, about five months, really, to be proactive, to have somebody like yourself, who's an expert in Stark, take a look at what their current structure is as an organization, to take a look at what their profitability is in the areas where they're actually sharing in the profits within the organization for the different departments, if you will, and then structure or have restructured their current agreements if they don't fit into the requirements that Stark has put forth as part of the final rule 
which take full effect in January of 2022. Is that a fair summation? That's a fair way to pull it, put it. And I will just close because I know that Please. all of you that are listening, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you work for, for physicians, with physicians. We want to make them happy. Physicians don't like it when they're surprised or when their cheese, their cheese is moved, you know, That's right. who moved my cheese. Um, and, and if you take a step back, none of us <coughs> like that, right? Um, so you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're reminding your physicians, hey, there's been some changes. We need to look at it. We need to look at the structure and make sure we're in compliance. And then you're going to have plenty of time to look at, you know, coming into compliance. If you need to make any changes, you're going to give yourself plenty of time to um, look at the financial ramifications and make sure that you tell your physicians um, how this impacts them going into 2022. You don't want to wait until December uh, to, to drop this on them if, if any changes need to be made. Awesome. Amanda, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of what I know is a hectic, crazy, busy schedule. And I think you did a, a, a heck of a job. You knocked it out of the park for our folks. Uh, thank you for uh, being part of the show. As always, it's such a privilege to be able to spend time with you. And, and every time I, I, I get to do that, I get to learn so much. So thank you again for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Sean. I just really enjoyed my time and always a pleasure with you. All right. I work with you. I'll see you in person soon. You definitely will. So, all right. Um, everybody, we're going to go ahead and pause for just a moment and we'll be right back with you. 